Hello and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by David Epstein. This podcast is brought to you by Hawking Dynamics, the world leader in innovative force plate technology. Hawking Dynamics takes a user-centric approach featuring a fully customizable cloud-based software that allows users to easily digest and analyze complex force plate data. The technology is constantly evolving, much like an app update for your iPhone. They communicate with users on a daily basis to make their system better. In addition to all of that, they also offer some of the most competitive prices for bilateral force plates on the market. And they're the only force plate company offering a completely wireless system. So, if you want to find out more, check out their easy intro to force plate section at www.hawkingdynamics.com forward slash blog. So, without further ado, it's time to welcome David onto the show. So, David, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for taking the time. So, can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've done until now? Just uh, uh, maybe 30 seconds to a minute for the ones who don't know who you are and why we've managed to rope you into this podcast. Sure. I'm probably best known as uh, the author of two best-selling books. First, The Sports Gene Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance, and more recently, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. Uh, prior to that, I was a science writer and investigative reporter uh, in an outfit called ProPublica. And before that, I was a senior writer at Sports Illustrated, uh, kind of focused on sports science and medicine and, and some investigative topics. Uh, and, you know, prior to that, I had a couple of goofy jobs. And before that, was training to be a scientist myself uh, until I realized that science writing was kind of a better fit for for my curiosity. So now I spend time kind of obsessing over, you know, often I would say misuses or mistranslations of data or research to the public. I think that's uh, that's a super interesting topic. And uh, we're going to touch on range today specifically. Um, so when we say range, what do you mean exactly by the word range? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, being having a broader uh, toolbox of skills and experiences than you have to have to be in the role that you're have, essentially. Um, so, so these wider skills that differentiate you from someone who just fits perfectly into the box of what you're doing. Cool. And how did you then come about the, the not the idea, but the the theory behind that? Because I imagine that's quite an, an interesting one to, to delve into. So why why did that come about in a sporting context for you? Yeah, it very much came out of sports. My first book, which was very sports centric, I, I kind of criticized some of the science underlying the so-called 10,000 hours rule. And that brought me into this debate at the the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, um, just started by uh, the president of the Philadelphia 76ers now, you know, to, to sort of bolster data analytics in, in basketball, but in sports, it's grown more beyond that. And I was invited to debate Malcolm Gladwell there about sports development, you know, how we develop athletes. And obviously he's a, you know, he's a pretty clever guy and I'd never met him and I didn't want to get embarrassed on stage. So I sort of tried to anticipate some of his arguments and I saw he'd written about, you know, the importance of um, early specialization for athletes. And I was the science writer at Sports Illustrated. So I said, okay, that's his hypothesis. Let me go see what the, what the research says. And I, and I saw that in most cases, most sports in most parts of the world, the science actually showed athletes who went on to become elite have this so-called sampling period where they do a variety of different activities. It doesn't have to be multiple sports. Sometimes it is, but sometimes, you know, rock climbing, martial arts, dance, whatever. But also importantly, they spent a lot of time in, in self-directed activity in many cases, which didn't really fit the, the 10,000 hours 
because scientists really call that the deliberate practice mode, right? It's focused on a specific kind of, uh, de- of practice. And so I, I brought that up at the, um, you know, at this debate that, that actually the athletes who become elite tend to have this sampling period and actually typically delay specializing until a little later than their peers. And he said, when we came, we're coming off the stage, you know, you kind of got me on that one. That doesn't really comport with my hypothesis. You want to go running tomorrow and talk about it. And we became, we were both avid runners. Um, he's like borderline world-class for his age group. And I'd been a national level runner. And so we became running buddies and started talking about this stuff on our own time. And we would use Roger Federer and Tiger Woods as sort of opposite ends of the spectrum. Tiger being kind of the quintessential early specialization story. Roger Federer, every bit as famous as an adult, but even tennis enthusiasts don't usually know, you know, the story of his development, which is this very broad uh, athletic experiences, even though that's what the science says is the norm and says the Tiger one is the exception. And so we would have these discussions that we called the Roger versus Tiger discussion. And that ended up being the introduction of the book. So the whole, you know, thing, it grew out of sports, but that just became sports became sort of an I mean, as it is for many things for me. Sports became kind of a frame or an analogy to think about these issues of specialization in the wider world. I think that's super interesting. It's also super interesting to hear that you were just uh, running buddies with Malcolm Gladwell casually as, as that happens, you know, in, in life, as you just walk through life and manage to become running buddies with uh, people don't realize how good he is. And he, and he hammers, man. He's, he's really, he trains hard. <laughs> if, if anything, I think the one thing I contributed to his training is the Fifth Avenue mile. This this famous mile race down Fifth Avenue in Manhattan was one thing he would do every year. And he had the year we trained the most together. He he had like a great drop in time. He was very happy about. And and I think the one thing I brought to him was said, stop your intense workouts a little earlier before the race. Like he would do an intense workout like two days before the race. Like you're not not causing physiological adaptation at that point. Like give yourself a week and a half to recover, you know, because he's. He's one of those athletes who has trouble not hammering, like right up to the day of the race. Oh, super interesting stuff. I love the little the little anecdotes that go with it too. But um, in terms of range, what are then the long-term uh, benefits to investing early in that, in your career, whether you're an athlete or a coach or whoever you might be, what do we get out of that early investment? I think they kind of fall into into two buckets. And, and the first having to do with uh, what I talk about in the book is called, that economists call match quality, which is the degree of fit between someone's interests and their abilities and the work that they do. And that turns out to be really important for, you know, how long they'll stick with it, uh, their sense of well-being, their performance, all these things. And it turns out that we are not necessarily so great at figuring out our best fit before trying stuff. Like we can't just introspect or take online quizzes or whatever. You have to actually try stuff. And so I think there's ample evidence that one of the reasons it's it's useful to try a bunch of different sports and delay specialization is that you end up m- with more likelihood of matching the person to a sport that fits them well. And I think we've seen, I mean, to talk about stuff that Malcolm's written about, that relative age effect in sports where you end up accidentally selecting kids who were just born earlier in a, in a birth cohort if you push selection too early. So really coaches mistake biological maturation for potential. Um and so I think you want to really delay, especially till like, after, you know, if you do selection before puberty, you know, you don't even really know who you're selecting, basically. Um, and so one, I think, is match quality. But this, this shows up in outside of the sports world as well. So like one of the studies I highlighted compared higher education systems, you know, in England and Scotland. And in the period they were studied, they were very, very similar, except for 
in England, students had to specialize a little earlier. And in Scotland, they could keep trying things if they wanted to. They weren't forced to, but if they wanted to. And the question this economist had was who wins the trade-off more often, the earlier late specializers. And there's a ton of individual variation, of course. But the most often what they saw was the early specializers get hired more quickly. They jump out to an income lead, but they end up with worse match quality. The people who got to sample longer end up with better match quality. So their growth rates are faster. And so by six years out, they've flown past the early specializers in income. Meanwhile, the early specializers start quitting their career tracks in much higher numbers, despite having more disincentive from doing so. Because it's like, you know, it's like they settled down and married their high school girlfriend kind of thing, which works sometimes, but usually not. Uh, so they, they were made to uh, choose so early, they more often made poor choices. And so I think that match quality is, is one aspect of it. The other aspect is actually the contribution to skills. And, and this is the case where I think we have to differentiate certain sports a little bit. I think for such a popular sport, I think there's kind of a dearth of good science on golf, but I can believe that early specialization is the best path for golf. I can believe it because golf is what the psychologist Robin Hogarth called a kind learning environment. Kind learning environment means uh, next steps and, and goals are always clear. Rules are clear, never change. Patterns repeat. Not a lot of human behavior involved. Conditions don't change much. There's not a lot of need to, to anticipate things that are happening before they happen, et cetera. Work next year will look like work last year. The kind learning environment where specialization may be the best path. In other sports, team sports that are more dynamic and require athletes to use so-called anticipatory skills, which means things are actually happening too fast for them to react to. They have to be judging based on arrangements of bodies and, and flights of objects and things like that. What's going to happen before it actually happens? And in order to do that, you require this kind of kind of quick data processing. And I think there's there's substantial evidence that having been exposed to that kind of challenge in in varied environments early on gives you a boost for doing it later on. It's very much like kids who grow up bilingual will sometimes have a bit of a delay in some of their language skills, uh, but they end up with no not only did they not end up behind later on, they end up with an advantage for learning any subsequent language going forward. And and I think there's data that show that an athlete who participated in three different so-called attacking sports, those are, you know, team sports basically, um, where they have to anticipate things, will be more quick to pick up skills later on. And so I think there's this this you sort of see in action this classic finding in psychology called breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. Transfer is your ability to take your skills or knowledge or whatever and apply them to new situations like you have to do in sports as the level moves up, you know, and things happen faster. And what predicts your ability to do that is the breadth of situations you've been placed in in training, essentially. So I think there's these two buckets of, of advantages. One, it has to do with getting yourself in the right place in the first place, and the other to do with the breadth of skills that you bring once you're there. And does that also then apply to things like uh, coaching as well? Because I imagine there's a lot of coaches listening who are thinking, yeah, that 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 sounds a little bit like my career as well. Is that something that we can take on board as, as coaches too? I think so. I mean, I should be careful about saying th this is my sort of personal speculation opinion here, but, but my view of a lot of great coaches is that in, in many cases they are like really great generalists. Like they may, they may have a specialty for, you know, they may coach a certain position or tactic or whatever it is, but 
there's not like a lot of secrets, I think, you know, scientific secrets in coaching. And yet different coaches get tremendously different results. Like you can look in a sport like the one I, you know, participated in at a national level, which was running. There are really not many secrets like, you know, and yet certain coaches consistently get very different results. And I think it has to do with the fact that the coach has to occupy all these roles of of certainly having some facility with the science of knowing what's there but also understanding the practicalities where the rubber meets the road, being ahead of the science in the sense of they know things to try that just seem like they work, even if they haven't been proven in a lab, and and being like a psychologist and counselor and motivator and all these sorts of things. And I was talking to uh, Stu McMillan, who's a coach I follow out at, at Altus, if you, you know, who's worked with some of the best athletes in the world. And when I was having this conversation, something he said struck me where he said, you know, we have a lot of these young coaches who are really into the physiology and maybe they have physiology degrees and they really have a good understanding of the science. And that's what they put all their focus on and they suck at communicating, you know. And then we have these older coaches who are like masterful communicators, but they're like, ah, keep that data away from me. Right. And it's it's the people who can bridge those things that are, re- you know, I would say like him, um, who who I think really have some competitive advantage. This podcast is also brought to you by Flex. Flex is the latest product to enter the velocity-based training market, developed by the team at Gymware. Flex is the only laser-based training system available, and it's this unique technology that makes Flex the most accurate and reliable barbell tracking product in the sub-500 US dollar category. It's wireless, portable, and it's super user-friendly. Find out why VBT is such a powerful training method and what separates Flex from the competition at flexstronger.com. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. And could you speak to what specifically then uh, people might gain, whether it's uh, athletes or whether it's coaches, uh, if they do invest in that, that range early, what are they looking at, at benefiting from maybe 20 years down the line? So uh, later on in their, their athletic careers or their coaching careers, um, what do you see then which distinguishes these people? So I think if when we're talking about athletes, one, I think they, again, those who who kind of had this broad base are more likely to be able to adjust as the level gets higher and, and the challenges change. Because if you can look at, if you look at sports from a data perspective, you know, you take something like tennis, for example, obviously, you know, an example I, I kind of opened the book with um, is the, the, there, there's a really interesting book, by the way, this is an aside called Extraordinary Tennis for the Ordinary Player. It was written by a guy named Cy Ramo, who is better known as the father of intercontinental ballistic missiles. So he was very interested in ballistics, whether they were tennis balls or or missiles. Um, <laughs> that and, was range. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, he, you, if you look at the books, he's like, it's from novels. I mean, he was in everything. Um, and what he what he lays out this data case that I've since seen supported in sort of more uh, sophisticated form that the game that like elite tennis players play is a fundamentally completely different one from the one that amateurs play in the sense that something like 80% of the points you know in amateur games are scored by mistake so you just like want to keep the ball in play essentially off unforced errors and and that totally reverses at the elite level where you have to force you know, you have to force points because you don't get those unforced errors. And I think one thing that becomes clear in various sports as you move up to the higher levels where, um, you know, being ahead on certain technical skills, like if you want to win, you know, a championship with 10 year olds, you can kind of teach them how to run plays or and and you can win. Um, but as you move up in levels, you need like creativity, 
basically. Um, and, and when you move up to those levels, it appears that the people that again had this broader experience in this are, are the ones who thrive. And I don't think that even means personally, and again, I'm going to speculate a little here. I don't think that means someone even had to play multiple sports. Like, you know, I, I lived when I lived in Brooklyn until recently, there was a U seven travel soccer team that met at a park across the street from me. I don't think there's a like human being in the world that thinks six-year-olds can't find good enough competition in a city with 9 million people, right? But it's all about this like feeling of professionalization and they're running set plays and all this stuff. And then, you know, when I've been to Brazil, it's like the kids are playing futsal and they're playing on sand one day and in cobblestones the next day, different shape area. And so they're playing the same sport sort of, but they're really being exposed to these very different environments in which they have to make decisions. And so I think you can capture a lot of that, that breadth of challenge that we know breeds creativity, even within a given sport, if you're committed to sort of changing up the environment. So that's from the athlete's perspective. From the coach's perspective, I think this is a, th- this is wide range. I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons I, I think I should say, I think for much of the 20th century, more specialization made a lot of sense. Like we were in an industrial economy. Things didn't change as rapidly. Uh, things didn't get as competitive quite as quickly as they do. Um, and, and that world where you could have like a discrete period of training followed by just then working off that training for the rest of your life, I think is gone. Um, you know, we've seen like the lifespan of, of S and P 500 companies has gone from like 60 years to like 14 years, you know, over about the last 60 years. So things change more rapidly. And, and one of the sort of hallmarks of people who succeed when things are, are, are in flux is having this base that they can use to pivot, essentially. Not necessarily abandoning what they were doing, but taking the things that they were doing and, and using them to pivot and emphasize some skills more than others. And, and I think that applies, you know, to coaches, even in the sense that the people they deal with, like the co- coaches keep getting older, but the people they're coaching often stay the same age. Right. But those people are changing like they're one of the things I hear a lot from coaches now is helping their athletes manage social media and stuff like that, you know, and and the impact on them. And so I think if you have a coach who's not kind of that oriented toward being that sort of lifelong learner, um, you know, they're not going to end up maybe as skillful as they could be. I think it's, uh, it's super interesting. I think some of the themes that come uh, keep coming through are kind of adaptability and creativity and making sure that you're yeah, at least at least ready to to change path or change course when necessary to change with the times um and in terms of applying this practically then how can we as uh, coaches teachers parents or athletes uh, ensure that we are then getting the range that we need to be ready and, and adaptable for the future yes it's tricky i think because as we become competent at something and i certainly noticed this in myself you know i think our our tendency not even our tendency it's like your momentum is to become more and more narrow. Like you have to proactively push against that. Um, because once you show you're competent in something, like people will have you do that over and over and over and over again, um, unless you sort of push back against it. And, and so for me, um, you know, one of the things I've done is I keep what I call a book of small experiments, basically, where I, I force myself at least every other month to ha- make some hypothesis and test it. That could be something as simple as, some area of work I'm interested in, but don't know anything about and I have to make contact with somebody in that area, which, you know, also adds kind of to your network. 
or it could be as involved as, as taking a class. So like one of the things when I got stuck in the writing of range, I ended up taking an online beginner's fiction writing class right in there with like, nope, you know, nobody cares what you've done, anything like that. And it was, I, I didn't learn from it what I expected actually, but it turned out to be incredibly helpful. We had this exercise where we had to write a story using no dialogue whatsoever. And I had been writing investigative stories for a couple of years, which are, can be very dialogue heavy because like, you know, your lawyers want you to put stuff in other people's words if you can. And, and I was doing that in my book because that's what I was used to because it was just my momentum. And I realized it was like not working. It, it's, it's tiring to read a book that is as quote heavy as an investigative magazine article. And I was also using it to, to kind of paper over things that I didn't understand deeply enough. So I went back through the whole manuscript. I mean, changed every single page. And it was a little bit scary in the sense that I didn't realize that I was just going off of momentum until I was sort of, you know, pushed out of my comfort zone. And so I think it's important to, to set up a system where you're doing something that, that makes you aware how much you've settled into your zone of competence. This, I, I, I call it the rut of competence, but this economist, Russ Roberts, he said, when I talked to him about it, he said, it's a hammock of competence because it's so comfortable, you know, you don't want to get out. But, but I think there are a lot of opportunities to do this stuff. Like there, there's an MIT study about how people use Twitter that, that was really cool. It, it blinded managers. It was looking at employees in a large organization, two large organizations, and it blinded managers to the employees' ideas. And, and the, and so they didn't know who they were evaluating. And it found that like one of the major differences between the people whose ideas were evaluated as, as like more innovative and, and, and better, um, the way they used their social networks was they were constantly curating, like instead of getting sucked into the algorithm and following the same people or just using it for entertainment, they would use it for information where they'd be follow someone, see, does it add, take them out, add a couple more people looking for people who don't quite agree with them. And they would often connect with these people actually in real life in some cases. Um, and so I think it's all these tools that are available to us. We can use them sort of mindlessly, you know, and become part of the algorithm, but we can also wield them in like a powerful way to, to diversify the antennas that we have sticking out into the world. But I think it just requires, it requires one to be proactive. Cause I don't think you even realize like how tracked you're getting unless you kind of pay attention. I think that's uh, that's probably the most powerful piece of advice that you can give is not to be trapped in uh, in social media because I'm sure uh, there's enough people who are, um, myself included. By the way, I'm not, uh, not <laughs> immune to that. So uh, that's uh, that's really useful. So thank you. Um, and the one thing that I want to ask you before uh, we we leave is the most difficult thing that we could imagine asking anyone, and that is what is the one thing that you see or do differently which the rest of the world can learn from that I do differently from like other people do. Yeah. Oh. I, I constantly against advice. Um, as soon as I've done something successful, I sort of turn away from it, essentially, like I run away from it a little bit. So like when the sports gene came out um, and became this, this, you know, like kind of surprise bestseller, um, I left Sports Illustrated right then for a literally two weeks later to go work at ProPublica, a startup that nobody had heard of um, at the time. It's now known in the United States. I'm not sure how much elsewhere, but, um, and to, and, and totally went away from sports reporting for the time, right? All the advice was brand yourself as the sports gene guy, you know, and then I started having some success there and then like, you can do this and this. And then I left that and went to range and now I don't know what I'll do next, but I realized the pattern for me is even when I was training to be a scientist. So when I was at one point in my life, I, I was in grad school training in geological sciences and even there, when I started to realize it wasn't a fit, just finish it out. Like you don't want to leave now and get behind. 
but I was pretty average as a scientist, I would say. Uh, but then you take those average skills and you move them over to a, a sports magazine and suddenly you're extraordinary because you've, you've got something that was average in one context, but it's super rare in another context. And so I have constantly, I don't want to say ignored because I've taken the advice under advisement, but not proceeded on it to like brand myself every time I have a success and instead have said, what can I take from this experience that will make me different in this next thing I go to, even if it's not unique to the world. So I have, I have always uh, sort of turned away from that advice that I still get on like a weekly basis to like brand myself as whatever the last thing I did was. I think that's uh, super interesting. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people can take uh, a really good message from that as well, instead of being the the tennis guy or the rugby guy or the whatever guy. Which is nothing um, wrong with that. Yeah, Just, yeah. Uh, you can probably you can probably make an absolutely fantastic life with it, but uh, I think it's really interesting to see people who've done things slightly differently as well. So uh, I really appreciate your wisdom on that one. Thank you. My pleasure. So uh, that's it. That's it time-wise, I think. So uh, David, massive thanks for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Cheers. All right, take care. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks to David for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of our free Coach Academy trial. That is seven days access to over 40 fantastic lectures on a range of topics. Lectures around two hours of content broken down into bite-sized chunks which can fit your coaching week. And if you really enjoyed today's podcast, I'm sure there's great content on there for you, including, for example, two hours on long-term athletic development. So if you're interested, all you have to do is click that one in the show notes, take a seven-day free trial, and check out all you can on a variety of different topics in the Coach Academy. And of course, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That means that you won't miss out on next week's fantastic episode. And of course, it means that we can keep bringing you the best possible guests so that we can help you to enhance your learning and your career. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.